Hey, this is Sean Perry. Welcome to Nashville, CA. I'm here with my co-host, Josh Ickes. And today we are talking about two heavy, heavy mind benders of movies. First, we're going to talk about uh, 1979's Stalker, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky and written by Andrei Tarkovsky with credit to also the Strugatsky, Strugatsky brothers who wrote mm -hmm. Roadside Picnic, the book it's based on. And then after that, we're going to be watching and discussing Annihilation, which is written and directed by Alex Garland, and it came out in 2018. So, also based on a book. That's true, which is by uh, Jeff Vandermeer. Yes. Good, good call. Got to get the original writers some credit, too. <laughs> so, Josh, how are you doing, bud? Pretty good, pretty good. These, uh, these were a lot. This was a lot of movie. This yeah. was four hours and 40 minutes of heavy, heavy movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, really fun. I Not fun. I don't, I don't think you can call Stalker fun, but just to explode my brain like that, and mm -hmm. especially I think leading Stalker into Annihilation was awesome. I, I loved that build and that lead-in. I think that pairing worked wonderfully. I have a lot to talk about this week. So do we want to work our way through Stalker, or do we want to talk about a little bit of um, trivia kind of stuff first? What, what do you think? Um, we could just talk kind of basics about just our, I'd say just our general relationship with both movies. Because okay. um, for me, I have a long past with Stalker. Um, I found out about Stalker when it was a PC game. Have you ever played the Stalker series? Uh, I haven't, but I'm, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, and so Stalker on PC is... It takes a lot from the book and from the movie Stalker, um, but it sets it near Chernobyl. And so the Chernobyl meltdown creates the zone, and then Stalkers are guys who go in. And so you go in and you look for black market items and... There's anomalies and traps, basically, that that exist in the world kind of randomly. Um, but the coolest part about the game was that it just... It nailed the essence of the zone because the game had this living AI system. And so there would be random factions of, like, a group of bandits would just wander around the zone, and then suddenly they'd get attacked by a pack of mutant dogs or something. And so even if you just sat in the middle of the world and did nothing everything would still be living around you and happening. And uh -huh. so it really nailed the zone. And that's like what brought me back and brought so many people back. It's this game, it's whew, 13 years old now or something. Mm -hmm. uh, the original Stalker, it's still one of the most modded games. It's one of the most popular games on the modding scene. It still has millions of downloads. Um, Stalker 2 is finally coming out. Supposedly, that game has been in development now for about eight years. Oh, wow. Um, but just really, really cool games, and they get they nail the isolation and kind of the romanticism of the danger, but also the beauty of the zone. And, um, and then I think that... So then that just led to me reading the book, and then I wish... I wish somebody had kicked my ass to see Annihilation in theater. Because I, I just, I, I heard it was good, but I didn't know what it was about. 
And so had somebody told me it's like, it's Stalker, basically, I, I would have ran to the theater to see it. And so I really regret not seeing Annihilation in theater. Yeah. How about well, yourself? Well, in the theater. Um, yeah, this, what release did this movie get? Annihilation uh, itself got, it's because of like bad test screenings, because it was, you know, people were expecting a, a more modern and I guess more explicable sort of experience with Annihilation. Um, it only had a, a short window for an actual theatrical before it went to Netflix, I think. Well, that's sad because we'll get into it later, but some of the sound design in Annihilation demands the highest quality speakers. Mm -hmm. it, it, the sound design in this movie is incredible, but it needs to be loud as fuck to be really experienced. Well, and I feel like the same kind of thing with Stalker. I mean, the the music slash sound design of Stalker was so integrated and such a part that uh, Tarkovsky like, apparently had a hand in it. And... It's really, I don't know, the, the mixture between the silence and the ambient sounds and the music and sort of the um, uh, synthesized ambient sounds that happen. We'll talk about them a little bit more, but it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's fascinating the way that he uses all of that together. What's the best sound experience you've had in a theater and i'll give you a minute to think i'll tell you mine okay it was my first time going to the new wave theaters that have reclining seats full mm -hmm. digital and like 18.3 surround sound or whatever god knows right. what they have in there and i went in blind to see arrival with my buddy oh, okay arrival when you play it loud and big the sound of the aliens and then that score, that movie was just massive and shaking the room. And it, 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 like when they go into the first time to like into the pod, the sound design had me feeling like I was there because it's mm -hmm. everywhere and it's these creaks and it's this, oh, it scared the shit out of me. And that was when <laughs> I really, like, seeing that was what convinced me that like, a sound bar is not good enough for me. So I, right. I have a I have a 5.1 system because I'm very passionate about movies and it's one of the main things I watch. And that it was that experience that taught me like, don't fuck around with sound because it changes everything. Yeah. So what was yours? Mine would probably be going to see uh, Fury Road because that is such a just all encompassing sort of experience. Uh, and we sat close to the front, and it was in uh, one of the newer theaters here in town. And, yeah, that blew me away. And when you get enveloped in the sandstorm, that scene, that sequence, like the way that the sound washes over you and then gets muffled. And it felt like there was actual pressure on my head because of that. It was great. That's awesome. Also in that movie, just my heart when they start to get the drums going <laughs> with the music and just like the madness of chaos that's happening on screen my heart can barely take it my oh, heart yeah. starts like going at the speed of the drums and all of a sudden i'm just that movie's amazing 
That's actually, well, it's one of the movies that um, I keep on my iPad for when I travel. Because when you're on a plane, a lot of times, like even with noise canceling headphones, it's hard to hear stuff. Uh, but Mad Max, I can hear all of it because <laughs> it's mixed <laughs> so high. Yeah. And there's like 12 minutes of dialogue in that yes. movie. Yeah. So um, that's awesome, man. All right. Well, should we get into this with Stalker? Yeah, let's hit it. All right. So um, do you have do you have plot points, basically? Yeah, I've got kind of a, a scene by scene breakdown. It's kind of a weird one to do a plot points of. It's a little bit meandering, but. And it's uh-huh. weird, like going into it, I had never seen it before, but going into it, I knew that essentially this is a movie where there's not a lot that actually happens, <laughs> but it's, no, it's nothing. fascinating the whole time. Yeah. You told me you had, um, what were you feeling when you were, when you were watching it the first time? That's, I definitely had like a sense of dread and just an expectation because the camera feels so heavy and it feels like an observer and it feels like something is going to happen. There's a weight to it. And it like it loads every scene with this expectation that anything could happen at any moment. That's funny. Yeah, I could see that absolutely on a first watch. But watching this for a second, this is my... I think this is my third time watching it. Um, you know, in one sitting. Um, last time I did it was a very hungover morning with my buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and we we spent our Sunday very quietly listening to Russian men wander around and talk philosophy. It was really nice. It was it was a cool experience, but I remember it being a mind bending experience that day. Oh uh, yeah, I can imagine. This movie is. As Gorley and Rust would say, our our podfathers, this movie is cozy as all hell. Oh, yeah. You just throw a blanket on, watch 30 minutes of this movie, walk away with some philosophical ideas that you can kind of play around with over the course of a day or two in your mind. And it, I mean, it's loaded. This is going to be a long, <laughs> it's going to be tough yes. to talk about, bud. So we better get going. So go ahead. All right. So in the opening... Actually, there's the first scene is of the bar. There's just a shot of the bar that they're going to meet in later um, while the credits play over it. Um, and it kind of it's almost acts as like an overture uh, and it kind of gets you used to the world a little bit. Um, so, yeah, that that music is by Edward uh, Artemev, I, I mm-hmm. believe is his name. And um, that intro music is really mournful but also mysterious and kind of fantastical. It's like yes. a it's a sad fantasy, which is basically prepping the, the entire story is a sad fantasy, basically. And uh, I don't know if you looked at the, the trivia, that was apparently the second score that he had done. The first one was like a traditional uh, with an orchestra. And the second time around, he did it with an orchestra uh, traditional instruments and sound effects and synthesizers and stuff. Um, and that's the one that Tarkovsky wanted. Yeah. So this is a weird one. There's, there's, there's a couple of woodwind flourishes, but mm-hmm. for the most part, it's just kind of a drone track with some ambient noise thrown in here or there. 
there's really not much music in this movie at all that I think you would call traditional music by any right. stretch, you know? So <clears throat> we get to see Stalker's house. He wakes up um, and he's sleeping in a bed with his wife and his daughter. Uh, and there's this beautiful shot kind of from overhead of the bed that starts on this bedside table and then tracks over to Stalker's face. And you see him looking at his his wife and daughter as he wakes up and when the camera moves back a glass of water starts rattling on this bedside this chair that they're using as a table uh as a train passes and we never see the train it's only there through sound and through the camera shake and through the shaking of the objects on the screen and that also introduces you to a lot of the way that this movie works things that happen off screen or things will be sort of implied through the sound and the camera work, but we don't actually see them. One thing I like to play around with, um, going forth, or should we just go full spoilers right from the get-go, basically? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I liked the idea um, on the rewatch of this is that it's potentially it's Monkey's Dream or something mm -hmm. like that that's moving the cup of water. I, it, this shot really implies that it's the shaking of the camera. I mean, excuse right. me, shaking of the, the uh, train tracks. Mm -hmm. But I do like to imagine that, like, when that kid has dreams, weird shit around her happens. Well, and that, the uh, the water glass moving, which, you know, full spoilers, um, there's a scene at the end where his daughter moves water glasses with her mind. Uh, and I think that it is like I, I watched it. I rewatched to take notes. Uh, and so that water glass hit me as like, a, oh, he's foreshadowing. Um, and the same thing with when uh, his wife follows him into the other room and she flips the light on the way that the light bulb burns out happens again later when they're in the zone. It's like almost the the same kind of beat of it takes a second. Then the light bulb gets so bright that it bursts. And that happens twice in the movie as well. That's I, I didn't catch that. Yeah. Also, I remember something about light bulbs burning out like that when I was a kid freaked me out. Oh, when yeah. You'd walk into your bedroom or something and hit your lamp and you'd get that flash and then you'd be in complete darkness. That uh -huh. scared the bejesus out of me. There's a, mo <laughs> there's a moment later where they're in the tunnels and I could just remember being a kid and having like the darkness behind me and, and, and like running away from i i knew that there was nothing in my bedroom but there's a long hallway from my bedroom to like the the family lounge area the living room and i would i would like walk out of my bedroom and then start to walk faster and then by just like get into like a full sprint <laughs> before i got to the light and it's just silly but that's I, I got some vibes from that later on in this movie um so yeah and then so the texture on the walls of his house, it looks alive. His walls have this living, almost wood-like texture. And also, mm -hmm. I don't know if we see it now, but we definitely see it later. Floor-to-ceiling books. Oh, uh, yeah. Books in every single space of this guy's house, basically. And it's... This is where you we really get, like, the rhythm of the movie starting already from the, from the jump. Um, because... This whole sequence with Stalker waking up, he has a confrontation with his wife and he cleans up and gets ready to go, um, is maybe three or four shots. 
through this whole sequence. Um, there's only about 142 shots over this whole movie through 163 minutes of runtime. Uh, so some of them come in at like over four minutes, uh, an average of 88 seconds for each shot. Most films, most modern films, the average shot length is like four to six seconds. And here it's 88 seconds. So. And you feel it every step of the way. And yes, I think it's, I haven't watched any other Tarkovsky's. I want to. I have mm -hmm. Solaris ready. I have Andre Rublev. I have Nostalgia. I have, I, I have a bunch of his movies ready to go. I have a book written by Tarkovsky about how he perceives time. But man, watching his movies, you have to be in the right mindset. And you have to just give all of yourself to it. And it's, it's a lot to give to a Tarkovsky movie. It's not easy to hit play. No, it was definitely like from the jump on this thing, you feel the weight of time passing and it's he's setting you up with almost this sense of boredom to before the before the crashes come before kind of the revelations happen. And in this movie, they're all entirely philosophical. Every sort of like revelation that happens is almost between these conversations that these three men have as they head into the zone, um, which the most, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say the most exciting physical thing that happens is they walk in a circle and meet back up with somebody and they didn't realize they were going in a circle. Right. <laughs> that, that's like the most exciting. Well, uh, the car chase at the very beginnings, the yeah. car, ch the car chase is cool, but we'll get to that. Um, so yeah, so the stalker and his wife, his wife is not happy about him being a stalker, and she's wondering if she's thrown her life away. Mm -hmm. That What is this life with a stalker? You live with a man who clearly lives with about a third of his heart here at home, and two-thirds of his heart exists in the zone, basically. Mm -hmm. That's where he's complete, and, and he's, he's a broken man outside of the zone, and... um just as you know she breaks down and right at her lowest moment as she's like lying on the ground just writhing in agony of emotional distress here comes that train again just chugging along just to emphasize and shake everything and just it's like a hand it's kicking somebody when they're down you know yeah to have that train pass right then um so now we're gonna go to the bar and we yes. we meet the writer yeah, the writer at first is talking with this woman that he wants to come on the trip with him, um, which the stalker and these these are the characters names in the movie. Stalker, writer, wife, professor. Nobody has a proper name. Everyone is known kind of by their position, except for monkey and porcupine. And those yes. are those are both kind of stalker nicknames. Yeah. And even uh, Porky is his Por daughter. And Porcupine was called Teacher before. Okay. So everyone, yeah, everyone has that basic name. Um, so the writer does two things right off the bat to really show disrespect towards the zone and the stalker. And that's one, he's trying to bring this floozy to the zone with him. And then he's also drinking. And these yes. are two things that right off the bat 
show his complete dismissal of everything and um and just i it, the stalker talks about him being a judge of character and you know being able to choose who he brings to the zone but as we'll see Throughout the course of the film, I don't know how great of a judge of character Stalker ends up being. And, well, and no. right, right off the bat, writer disrespects everything about the whole process. And the writer's uh, monologue that he has right at the beginning, he talks about how there's nothing mysterious left in life. Everything is tedious. Uh, he said that things were better in the Middle Ages. Life was interesting because every house had a goblin in it and every church had God. And... So he's saying that he lives in a time where you are post-God, you are post-belief, you are post-finding any wonder in the world. And that's sort of what Stalker thrives on, is his belief and his faith in the zone. Um, who says, I, I believe it was writer, but I wasn't sure if maybe it was Professor's first line. Um, somebody's talking about the relationship of A squared plus B squared equals C squared, and mm -hmm. there are there are no flying saucers, there are no telepathy. Right. Was that was that writer or I think that was writer, correct? That's writer. Yeah. Okay. Because he he mirrors himself with the the Pythagorean theorem a couple of times. He uses that as like a proof of the concreteness of the world. Okay. I yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, yeah. So, and then we, once we get in, the writer is drinking, prof we meet the professor, and professors, they're not too thrilled, but Stalker seems pretty confident that this guy's going to sober up once they get into the zone and maybe take it more seriously. Um, we learn that the writer is essentially going into the zone to cure his writer's block. Mm -hmm. And as we'll see later... Um, in, re in relation to our previous episode, Ryder and Fellini's character in Eight and a Half, I think, share a lot of traits in common. Oh, definitely, yeah. It's it's a it's an artist who's being devoured by his fans and people who just want more of him and more and, but it'll never be enough. So, Professor says that he wants to go into the zone because he's a scientist of sorts. He doesn't really lay out from the beginning uh, what it is that he wants out of the zone or why he, he's willing to undertake this risk. And we don't really understand um, how heavily the zone is guarded or what kind of penalties there are yet. The stalker's wife sort of implied that he had been in prison uh, for a previous journey into the zone that he got busted for. Um, but we don't really know how dangerous it is at this point. Uh, but the professor carries a backpack with him um, at all times, which is important to hit him. And uh, I think it's almost like a uh, shows their the weight of their souls because the professor carries a backpack and the writer carries a plastic bag, like a little looks like a Kroger bag <laughs> with him. Uh, and just kind of shows how seriously they each take it. Um. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about their bags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not really quite sure what the writer, the the professor basically says he's going into the zone, just out of, out of scientific curiosity. I don't quite. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure what his. F fake, fake reasoning was. 
Right. Um, well, and they kind of explain it over the course of the journey, but the reason that people are going into the zone to begin with, um, something mysterious happened at the heart of this zone and people would journey in there. Um, and basically the government set up a barricade to keep people out. And you don't know if how much of this is myth and how much actually happened. It might be a meteor. It might be an alien visitation. This is it's spelled out in the book, but it's left intentionally vague in the in the movie. Is that right? Um, yeah, in the book, it's it's much more clear that it's I think in the book, there's multiple zones and they're of alien descent. No, not a dis- it, they don't know how they were created, um, but they seem to be alien in the book. And the traps are a little bit more um, physical. Like, there's like a, a cobweb trap that basically is kind of... It'll, it's like a cobweb that if you back into it, it basically like eats into kind of one guy. And so there's oh, okay. more there's more physical traps and you see them in the in this movie um, throwing bolts with um, ribbon tied to it, piece of cloth tied to it. And that's from both the book and then the game uses that. That's the the stalker's way to check for any traps or any weird shit that happens that you can't mm-hmm. see. And so it's interesting that Tarkovsky Tarkovsky kind of, I don't know how how valid this is, but Tarkovsky kind of did what Kubrick did with The Shining, where he took the, the skeleton of something, but then I think made it a little bit more, tried to make it a little bit more highbrow philosophical. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I read, I read The Shining, and but I'm not a huge King fan, um, so I, I, I'm sure someone would have an argument with me about that, but, <laughs> um, but Tarkovsky, you know, you could tell Tarkovsky wasn't really interested in traps per se. He, that's not, yeah. that's not why he was making this movie. It was more just the power of the zone and the philosophy of the zone. Well, and he um, explicitly so, go ahead. wanted to get away from a lot of the genre <clears throat> type stuff that was, he found the genre trappings kind of boring and that anybody could do that was um, even down to individual shots. If a shot was set up like a shot that he'd seen in another movie, he would change the shot. He wanted it to be unique and totally his own voice. So he definitely was the auteur, even if he wasn't the author of the original text. So we're about to set off into the zone and so we get our three guys and this awesome tiny little jeep looking car i don't know what Uh kind of car it is but um and we get into one of the cooler car chases i've seen in a while because you don't (laughs) this is it's not a car chase it's car hide and seek and that's really cool and that's it's not something that you really get to see but you watch these guys slowly navigating these alleys as cops are running around or military police are running and driving around. And at one point, they all jump out of the car and Stalker just lies on the on the street like he's dead. I wasn't sure if he was hiding behind the car or if he was just pretending to be a dead body, but um, it's a great little sequence and definitely the most action this movie has by far. Oh, yeah. And that's... Um... 
you kind of get that they're following this train through these train tracks um, while they're avoiding the police. Uh, there's a guy who leaves a gate open for them for a second after the train goes through. Um, and then once they get through this kind of bigger gate, a lot of the military police actually start firing on them. Um, and that's the, even that's the coolest part is when the, the front wheels of the car are outside the tracks, but the back wheels are inside. And so their car is shimmying along at a 45 degree angle going up the tracks as they're getting shot at. I just thought that was so cool. And something (laughs) like just having a tiny car like that, added so much fun stunt shit that you could do you know yeah oh josh sorry hold on i'm gonna go check my phone (laughs) (laughs) i did not turn anything off so i'm glad it was oh i did turn stuff off i'm glad it was you okay (laughs) um sorry to interrupt you that's all right but we are headed to the train yard now and so we um we get to the train yard, and they find a little train car that use, looks like a railroad maintenance car. And the three of them jump on it. And we begin our slow final sepia sequence for a while before we get into the zone. And it's at this right. point I have in my notes, I don't remember who quite said it. Uh, da, 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 da. I think it was writer. I know. I think it was professor. Maybe it was writer. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, "My conscious wants a juicy steak. My subconscious wants the triumph of vegetarianism. Vegetarianism. So what do I want?" Right. And um, I think that's really interesting. Um, the duality of that, and it's also after having watched Annihilation today, definitely something that jumps out at me. Of, like, the duality of existence and coping with your mind. And um, and then this quote also comes up later when we see the tale of Porcupine. And Porcupine was a stalker who was stalker's teacher. And they're going to a room. The room is where this whole journey is headed. And the room is a wish granter. That sounds ridiculous, but that's, that's what we're doing. And uh, so porcupine, stalkers have a rule. Stalkers do not cross the threshold into the room. They only take people. And so porcupine's brother was extremely sick or he died, Josh? He died in the zone. Porcupine's brother it, did. Okay. Yes, it's kind and, of implied that it was the fault of porcupine. I see. And so porcupine decides to cross the threshold into the room to wish back his brother yet instead the wish that gets granted is that porcupine becomes a very rich man and thus his nature of similar to the the writer of wanting a steak but also wanting vegetarianism unfortunately for porcupine he uh he realizes his true nature prefers riches over his brother's life and uh ends up killing himself due to this realization mm-hmm. so and uh, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> I was just going to say, so we're on this rail car with the men, and this is one of the more kind of talked about sequences in the film because we're mostly on the the backs of their heads, and we kind of catch them in profile. But this is one of those four or five minute long sequences, and all we're doing is sitting on this car. We don't get any look at the wider world except for as it passes. 
from you know the the backgrounds of these close-ups of the men and the sounds like it starts out as definitely the sounds of this little rail car but it becomes more and more kind of alien and abstracted sort of when you hear the same word too many times and it loses its meaning and it starts to sound alien um i had an office a couple years ago that they were doing demolition on the building across the street and i would hear jackhammers all day and after a while like it becomes part of the background but it it becomes part of your white noise and that's almost what happens with this like clanking sound it becomes abstracted and kind of alien until we get this final cut that introduces us to the zone which is breathtaking because it's the first shot that's in full color in this in the movie yeah, um, that journey. Have you seen the Before Sunrise? Any of those movies? That trilogy by uh, was it by uh, Linklater? Linklater, yeah. So those movies are. Um, this sequence reminded me of those a lot because he does a lot of really long shots with actors walking in the foreground, and then the entire world behind them. You walk mm-hmm. around Paris for a couple minutes at a time, <clears throat> and so this really reminded me of that style where not only are we seeing these men and kind of the journey they're about to go on and them contemplating what's happening and that they're actually going to the zone but we're also seeing the road to the zone and it's 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 not too clear in the background but you can just make out the the dilapidated buildings and the forest and the nature and the broken down nature of things and it's the sepia tone and it's heavy, and the world is broken and brown, and it's long, and it's five minutes long, and it just goes on and on, and then bright green. Mm-hmm. And it's like, holy shit, it's that Wizard of Oz moment where all of a sudden... Did you know this movie was in color, Josh? No, because even on Criterion Channel, the like the promo pictures for it are the sepia-toned ones. How did you experience that? That was, it was a rush when it happens. It really is like, oh my God. And you kind of blink for a second because you're not expecting it. I was so excited. And especially this time, this was the clearest, that Criterion copy. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's beautiful. The work that they did. Because this is, I, I've just watched like DVDs of this movie before that were kind of crappy trans, um, uh, whatever copies but this was beautiful and the color after having um, i think it's about 35 or 40 minutes of just sepia tone brown to just go to dark green and blue skies and gray buildings it's it's a stunning transition Mm -hmm. and so stalker makes the writer and the professor basically just sit down and this yes. is one of my absolute favorite moments that I can really relate to is he walks off on his own and he just lies down in these vines and in these long grasses and he goes fetal and you can just see it's like he's returning to the womb of nature and you can see him being healed by the zone just in this moment this moment of pure bliss and relief to be back there once again and to be home and to be to be where he feels he belongs and to be on his what he believes is his only the only thing he does in life that's worth anything is what he's doing right now and so he's back again and you feel that 
relief from him and that's and that's what the color brings is the color in addition like just adds so much to that moment when he's being absorbed by nature and that's his first line once they hit the zone is we're home at last yeah like that's that's how he views it his his time with his wife and his daughter <laughs> sadly is not fulfilling to him it's the zone there's something about this place that, like you said it heals him it, it makes him full yeah um what's the next plot point you have um we find out uh through the men talking this is when we get porcupine's story uh, and we find out that the stalker's daughter has been mutated due to his time in the zone um, yes they they say she has no legs but it seems that she just i'm not sure if she's paralyzed from the waist down or or what you know i think we only see her being carried mm-hmm. so she does have legs, just... <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, this is when we actually find out about the room. We're an hour into the movie at this point. <laughs> uh, once oh, they this, start off again. Is this where the room finally comes into it? Yes. Oh, that's we hilarious. finally find the reason. And it's like... <laughs> and I've been holding my breath this entire time during this movie, not even knowing what's happening, just going along moment to moment with it. So... um. So, Stalker, uh, oh, go ahead. As I say, he tells the other men that the straightest path isn't the shortest path in the zone. Uh, and you get a lot more of the writer kind of disrespecting the zone and all the unnatural stuff that can happen there. Um, yeah, the writer, and, the writer picks some flowers and the stalker throws an iron bar at his head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, once again, a writer showing no respect. And then I love... I, I want to talk to you about this moment is where the writer walks towards the building disregarding mm-hmm. Stalker's warnings and Stalker's pleading with him like he's going to die if he takes another step. And writer just keeps walking until we hear a disembodied voice. Right? Say stop. Yeah. Yes. And that this is one of the very few times where the zone really shows itself and shows its presence like this mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, but it, it validates everything. Cause up till this point, you might think the stalker is completely full of shit about, right. about, you know, he's being ridiculous. Why can't we just walk in a straight line? The room is 200 meters away or, you know, it, it the room is extremely close to where they are right? as the crow flies. Um, but man, they're, they're going to take your time to get their time to get there. <laughs> and that's exactly what I was thinking in this moment when I was watching it, I was like, this could all be made up. Everything that the stalker has said and all of the sort of imaginings of these men could be totally BS at this point. Uh, and it could just be like this wisdom that's been handed on that has no basis in reality. Um, and I think that you're supposed to, he plays with that a little bit in this moment. Yeah. And also the fact we learn that the zone responds to you as an on an individual level and or according to the stalker who you are and how you go into the zone and what's in your mind will kind of dictate how the zone responds to you and he Mm -hmm. also says at this point which is um kind of a, a major theme of the zone itself is the zone is not for the good or the bad but it's for the ones with no hope and, right. and Stalker alludes to this a lot again, that he's the most hopeless one of all, 
um, in, in this group by far, I think. A writer talks about being hopeless, but it's just kind of in that kind of BS artist way of inflating their own work and what they do yes. and what they mean. And Professor Professor seems really checked out. He's just in this just for his mission, you know? And um, so Stalker seems to be the only one truly hopeless. And th I think this journey means a lot more to him than it does to either of these two other guys. And we see that over and over. And especially by the end, you can see he's devastated that People don't take this. Uh, they don't respect it. They don't. Mm -hmm. They don't. Um, I can't think of the word, but they don't show the love and admiration for just the absolute majesty and power of the zone and the room. And it it, it crushes him every time. And that's this is where we get our title card that says part two. <laughs> Yeah, I, so do you know if there was an intermission during this filming? I mean, excuse me, during uh, when this movie would be shown? I don't know. The Some of the behind the scenes um, was the idea that this movie was shot two and a half or three times. Um, I don't know if you came across much of this stuff, but the the first time they shot the movie, they shot for months before they went to watch any of the footage and it had been on this new uh, film stock. And the DP apparently was not very familiar with it. And the labs in Russia weren't familiar with it. And so it was all tinted a weird color. And um, so Tarkovsky had to go back and he was devastated, but had to go back and get more financing for it. And part of that financing was that he would wind up with two movies instead of one. They would break it into two. And I think they were trying to do kind of the... Um, Harry Potter or Twilight thing where they were trying to double their box office receipts off of one movie by splitting into two if it was if it was going to be long enough. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I, I don't know what I would make of a movie that stopped there and that was the end of it. Oh, I know. Um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the location that they're at? I don't have any specifics except that these are all real locations they're at like a real busted, broken down dam or something. And unfortunately, the mythos of this movie is that it was kind of a cursed production due to um, filming near a chemical plant, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And basically, every single cast or cast and crew member ended up um, dying at an unusually early age, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it's there's um, a famous, I believe, John Wayne movie that also kind of shot in a in a toxic environment, <clears throat> and a lot of the the cast and crew wound up dying early because of it, and that's definitely what this reminded me of, um, which is weird because it takes a little bit in digging through the production notes to get to the the story that it's a cursed movie. Um, I think in most productions that would be the top of it. But this production went on so long and was so windy. And from the book to the original script, when they had the break in between shooting, they uh, Tarkovsky had the Strugatsky brothers rewrite the script more to his vision, so much so that they actually released another novelization of the movie that was based on a book. <laughs> wow. That was totally separate. Um, but 
from a filmmaking perspective, I am in awe of how they got a lot of these shots because it, it looks to be that everything is totally overgrown and you're just in this wild kind of marshland most of the time and in and out of these tunnels. And I can't imagine a full production going through these places. No, there's shots where it feels like the camera is floating over the waterfall and that the yes. writer and stalker are walking around. And it's moments where modern camera work, you could say, oh, that was a drone or that was this, but to not even, I don't believe steady cams were around back then. So everything had to be uh, dollied or on rails or something, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So yeah, it, it's it's unbelievable. And the locations that they found are magnificent. Some of the best, most unique sets, and they're not even sets, it's just on, on set locations that I've ever seen. Right. It was, um, there were hydropower plants uh, in Estonia, um, which is actually apparently where they found that dog that shows up, because that wasn't in the original script. He just showed up and was there on set and listened to their commands, which is amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that dog's a good actor. Yeah, that, that dog's, that's a handsome honestly, dog. Honestly, that dog is up there with the Thing dog, as far yeah. as it's some of the best dog acting I've ever seen in a movie. Because the dog, for me, is like, you know, like a peyote trip. You'd have like a spirit guide or like a spirit yes. animal or something. Like that. that's, that's how I feel about the dog, is that the dog is basically the stalker spirit in the zone and the fact that he gets to go home at the end with the dog i think says a lot because he also towards the end of the movie you actually get to see some of his house the shots of his house and stuff in color or not mm -hmm. the, the area around his house so i think that shows that you know by the end of this the stalker's bringing a little bit more of his stalker personality and zone along with the dog back with him oh definitely um so and then one of my favorite parts is when the stalker talks about trees and he's a real mm -hmm. arbalist this guy um but basically <laughs> he says that when trees are young they're soft and flexible and pliable and they survive and then when a tree is old it's hard and it won't and it's uh, it won't bend and then it will break and it will die and basically again and again the stalker's trying to just get people to open their minds be open to things be open to nature be open to the world don't don't be this bullheaded human who thinks about yourself first you know it, it stalker definitely has a lot of kind of new age um psychedelic trippy values i would say yes i i like th i feel like this guy has done some mushrooms while he's in the zone and he <laughs> kind of it imparts those values um, so I really connect to that part of the movie. So like, all, like, all the parts of like him lying face down in the grass, and so, it's all stuff I've done. So I really, <laughs> I really connect with the stalker character. And so it, it, I think it just adds more and more connection to this movie. Um, so we go back and um, the professor and writer are arguing about some bullshit and kind of throwing insults at each other. And we're all lying down near the water. And suddenly we go back into sepia. And I, I'm curious what you think about what these sepia transitions mean. Um, 
for me, I think that point is, it's like the, the brown filth of humanity. He's is back, you know, like in that moment when they're arguing, the stalker is surrounded by shitty humans instead of being surrounded by the zone. Mm-hmm. Um, is how I basically read that. I don't know if you had a, a read on that. It was, uh, from my thinking, it was <clears throat> moments where his faith is shaken, where he is closest to despair and he is closest to his outside of the zone persona that he has. Um, in some of the behind the scenes material, I believe it was Jeff Dyer uh, called him a holy fool character. Um, and that kind of informed when I was watching it the second time to take notes. Uh, it inf- informed my viewing of him and kind of being a character with a lot of faith. And so those moments would be where he's, furthest from his from his faith from his light whatever that is you watched this twice yes good for you bud wow <laughs> listeners of nashville ca i'll have you know i probably won't watch three hour movies two times for this podcast <laughs> josh can do that if he wants but um i love this movie but i, I can't watch a tarkovsky movie twice like that you're you're a madman well, the first time I was too, I thought I was going to take notes, but I was too drawn into it. And which surprised me because, like I said, some of these shots are four and a half minutes long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, you, there, There's a lot of time to take notes, except the pace of this movie. It's the brilliance of it because once you give into it, this movie puts you in the zone. And so the pacing of it, the long shots, the very, very slow camera pans and zooms allows you to just pick up every single detail of decay and of nature taking over where humans left off and nature consuming, the zone consuming human artifice. Um, The pacing of this movie is mesmerizing once you accept it and give into it, and it works so well. Um, It it gives you time and space to chew on kind of the philosophical arguments that these men are having. And I think it's not just um, a carving up of time from the storytelling point of view, but audio, audio also for the audience for giving you this moment of reflection of maybe how you would act in this situation, how these different men philosophy has impacted your life or how you live your life according to one of them. Because they're definitely, like, played as archetypes, you know, that you can read into more than individual characters. Yes, absolutely. And so we get to um, the writer talking about being afraid of actually finding his validation. Because if you gain your genius, then what's the point? Would he even want to keep writing if he became enlightened? And I kind of related it to, like... God God forbid you climb Mount Everest and you get to the top and you don't have a some kind of cathartic experience. <laughs> you know? If you if you get to the top of Mount Everest and you feel nothing, then oh, Jesus, what's the point of anything, you know? So, um and I, I like that fear. And it's also kind of also um shown by Stalker's wife, and she says towards the end of the movie that she would rather have bittersweet happiness than a gray life of nothing. Right. Um, 
So we're going, uh, this is one of the trippiest parts is when stalkers line on the ground. It's a sepia shot and it goes from the top of his head. And this is one as a filmmaker, I, I would be curious to hear your take on it. It's a vertical pan that just slowly moves up and we go from the top of the stalker's head and we go up and the camera's maybe six to 12 inches above the surface of the water. And we're seeing all these artifacts decaying in the water and the artifacts are coins and guns and religious artifacts and gears and springs and they're all decaying and they're all being consumed and they're all these man-made artifices and this mm -hmm. shot goes for two minutes and it's one of the biggest moments of the score it's like a two or three minute sequence and it's really really trippy and the thing that really throws me is that the whole shot is going in a straight vertical line yet it ends up looping back around to the stalker's hand. So the shot itself, because this one fascinated me, is actually three minutes and 26 seconds long, gliding over this water. And it's like, um, it looks to me from first blush, like they're on a dolly track, but the camera's pointed straight down and it's kind of dollying along above the water. Um, but you never get any reflection of the camera and the angle makes it look almost impossible because you even travel over a mirror that's underwater at one point and you don't see the reflection of the camera or any gear, which it's almost, it's like a magic trick. And, you know, it's pretty simple as far as actually angling the camera and angling the mirror so they don't see each other. But the way that it feels is like one of those early silent movies where something spectacular would happen and the audience would be amazed because... They just saw magic. That's how that's that's how this shot feels. Um, I still and I have no idea. I still feel I that no magic. Idea. It's still yes. magical. It's similar to eight and a half. The intro shot to that. I don't. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how the hell he did this in the mid nineteen or late nineteen seventies. No right. idea how you get camera movement like this. It's unbelievable. Uh, so after this. The stalker brings up music uh, because the writer and philosopher are arguing about some bullshit again. And I like this because music is a beautiful combination of math and art. And it kind of unifies the professor and the writer together because they both present these two different ideas of, of hard science and of philosophy. And music is almost the blending of those two things. And right after, um, after they say this, the the writer and the professor are basically in this the middle of the frame sharing the same body where one is in front of the other and you just mm -hmm. see one guy's head po uh, poking out and so it's almost like as they talk about music tarkovsky is blending these two guys to show the unity of music and also just like the power of music and that we don't have to be separated all the time you know we, it can bring us together that's <clears throat> beautiful and it um it definitely it didn't strike me but yeah i can definitely see that it's great um yeah so this is the part where um they go in the tunnel and writer draws the the short straw or the long straw i guess in this movie yeah and um blame stalker for it but whatever it's just you know you're drawing straws um and so they make him go th first through the tunnel. And this part is both scary, but kind of 
childlike in how Professor and Stalker are keeping it, like, just in eyesight of him, but they're, like, sneaking up and hiding behind the wall and, like, terrified to look at him. And it, it's really, it's it's spooky, but it's also really goofy. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those uh, stages of the film that I definitely felt like something was going to happen because these tunnels you're in have such, uh, there's water constantly dripping. There's moss and lichen and stuff like growing down from uh, these overhead openings. And just the fact that it's so perfect for the film. And yet this was a place that existed in one of these hydro plants, I guess that that in and of itself is fascinating. Unbelievable that this place exists. And this is where the writer pulls out the pistol that nobody knew he had. And once again, a complete disrespect for the zone. And as we've already seen, um, man-made weapons seem to decay fastest in the zone, as Mm -hmm. we saw by those tanks, which uh, there's abandoned tanks, and they seem to be more decayed and more dissolved than anything else in the area. And so I think it's really disrespectful. And this is... This is the jump scare of the movie is the hard cut to the sand dune room after oh, yes. after it's called the meat grinder. But after the tunnel, <clears throat> there's that hard cut to a room that's completely full of miniature sand dunes. And it's one of the most incredible sets I've ever seen. It's terrifying. And the fact that it hard cuts to it shocks me every time. Yeah. And this is a shot that I've seen because um, they'll use it in film textbooks and stuff quite often. I think it's on some Um, posters, too, potentially, or DVD covers or something. Yeah. And but it's one of the most surreal looking things I've ever seen. Like just you're inside of a room and there's these dunes and they're hard. It looks like they're kind of hard packed, but you can't quite tell if it's snowy or sandy or what it's supposed to be. And it's, it's eerie. And it's kind of the, the last step that these guys have to take before they get into the, the actual inner sanctum of this industrial building they're in. Yeah. And so it's at this point that we see a bird fly through what looks like a loop trap where it's like, there's a bird flying through the air and then suddenly there's some frames cut and then the birds flying through the air again. But it, it looks like it, some kind of weird anomaly in the zone happens as that bird flies through. And then we cut to Ryder mm-hmm. lying on his side, looking like he had an instantaneous acute case of depression. Like that's and the, this, this area is called the meat grinder and that's one of the traps. And so it's interesting just that we've heard so many of these traps and clearly right here, you can see a trap can be psychological, but you know, something almost killed writer just in his mind in this moment. Mm -hmm. And they, I think the only reason that he is spared is because he's hopeless. And is this where he delivers his, his monologue with his back to the other men, like from clear across the room? Uh, yes, this is, he, um, the quote I, that I took from this, this is where I meant that he mentioned that he's similar to Fellini in eight and a half, but, uh, the quote I took from this and paraphrasing is, I tried to give them something, but they changed me in their image, talking about his audience. 
and mm-hmm. he also uses the word devour that I, I think at this point he talks about audiences devouring the artist and um this is where i think writers possibly at his absolute lowest yeah it definitely feels like this is the most raw and truthful he is during the whole time and the most um the deepest we see into him because he otherwise he seems like a very shallow character on purpose like he he brushes off any idea of reading into things too deeply or there being anything behind the scenes at all. We're going to see him be real sarcastic here in a few minutes. So, yes, I I agree. Um, So let's see here. At this point, um, we hear Porcupine's poem. Porcupine's poem is beautiful, and it's basically just that this beautiful day is never enough. These things that I have are never enough. The sun shining on me and the grass beneath me, it's never enough. And it's a really tragic poem. And uh, the stalker says something right after this when the writer gets back. The stalker says, oh, you survived the meat grinder. You live to be a hundred. And the writer right. says, I'd rather live forever. And so, again, right as right after Porcupine's poem about nothing is ever enough, stalker tells him you'll live to a hundred and it's not enough. And... Is this where they go into kind of the antechamber this, right in front yeah, of we the are, room itself? Yeah, we are officially now in the room outside the room. And it's <laughs> flooded, and there's giant empty light bulb casings in the water. And I thought they were Erlenmeyer flasks. Um, I don't know. Or, they, they, they very or, well could be flasks. Also, did, yeah. did you say Erlenmeyer just because you wanted to show off that you knew that word? <laughs> that's that's my <laughs> one word that I gained from the X Files. <laughs> well, I'm I don't imp- remember I'm, from school time. I'm impressed, bud. Okay. <laughs> so, oh. uh, yeah. So we're hanging out in the antechamber, and uh, this is where I don't have too much of a take on this. I I, I meant to rewatch this scene, but I ended up not doing it. But the writer essentially mocks religion and fashions a little crown of thorns for himself to wear. Yes, as um, there's sort of three stages. So the this one shot that lasts a long time, you're looking through a doorway and the three men are standing in front of this window and there's a phone in the foreground. And during this entire scene, writer is kind of he's pulled these weeds and thorns together uh, and he's making this cr- this crown and um, the phone rings like in this place where nothing is supposed to work it's, it's a scary moment yes uh, that, and, that is really eerie um, that reminds me of like a two sentence horror story that I was told in high school where it's you're the last person on earth there's a knock at the door Right. Yep. And uh, so this is where Professor pro- reveals his true nature. Also, yes, Professor uses this working phone to call one of his colleagues to gloat that he's going to finish his his mission. Uh, and then the colleague apparently had slept with Professor's wife <laughs> previously <laughs> and cuckolded him, and. Uh, it's very much a 
uh, it strips this this man and humanizes him in the same moment. Um, yeah, and he reveals his his actual reason for being here. Yeah, and so he's there to blow up the room, and this is the part where I'm especially concerned about Stalker's belief that he's a good judge of character, and he's he's the one who can decide who to take into the zone and who not. Because he's clearly not a good judge of character, because this whole time this guy's been lugging around a backpack, he's just believed that it's a thermos and a sandwich, and this guy's just very adamant about snack time. <laughs> but, uh... Also, um, I wasn't quite sure if we ever saw where the professor found the bomb, because he says it was in bunker number two or whatever. Was that, that must have been before the journey, right? Or was that in the, yes. was that in the zone? I think it was before the journey. The second time I watched it, I got the feeling like it was before. The first time I thought it was in those few moments where he was lost. Um, and the other men didn't see him, that he might have found it. But I think that he comes into the zone with it. So outside the room, um, this is something I did not really pick up on before, or I just don't remember it. There's two dead bodies, and it seems that they're mm -hmm. embracing each other, and I believe they find a bottle of sleeping pills nearby. And so that it's just another one of those moments that just implies so much story and living world into the zone that it doesn't even need to give you an answer or what that's about, but just the fact that this world has seen so much. And it, it, it's, it really adds to everything that's majestical about it. I don't think majestical is a word. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> if I rhyme it with testicle, it is. <laughs> uh, there's a spiral of foam outside the room that looks like a galaxy which I think is fucking awesome and um, so this is where Professor basically decides that it's not wise to do something irreversible and multiple times throughout this movie we've talked about whether it's the Professor telling the writer don't go back into the bar to buy cigarettes you can never go back. Uh, later on, they they never backtrack. They never retrace their steps. There's a constant theme in this movie of things being irreversible. And so the professor wrestles with this notion that what he's about to do is irreversible. And he admits that he actually does not understand anything. And right, mm -hmm. and right, as, he under, right as he does this... Um, we the camera moves into the room and so we the audience cross the threshold and we're now in the room and the first thing that happens after this is the professor throws his bomb away and now it's, and it's josh what do you have for this because this was i didn't catch that we were in the room i don't think the first uh -huh. time i watched this movie and so this time it took me a minute or so but once i realized where the camera was the hairs on my arms were standing up because I was like, holy shit, I'm in, I'm in the room. Right. And it's just, it's so beautifully done the way that you're kind of led into it. Um, the men have been fighting over the bomb. They've gone through this long <clears throat> journey and they're all sitting like leaning against each other on this damp, rocky ground outside the room. And 
So it starts, I don't even know if you can see the door frame when the shot first starts, but as the camera pulls back, you, you see the door frame and these kind of orange lights, like an almost this beautiful uh, glow kind of happens inside the room and the walls are illuminated briefly. And then the camera keeps pulling back. And as the uh, professor throws the bomb away, it begins raining inside the room. So it's another one of these moments of between the lights and the rain that you get that this place is full of miracles and is full of inexplicable things that you don't understand. Um, and as an audience and, member, to be in the presence of that, to be in the room with that power when the characters are not, was mm -hmm. a very profound moment for me, as just as a movie watcher. And I, I think it's beautiful that they sit the three of them back to back. And I, I don't quite have a take on it yet, but the room does get light. And Stalker's talking about potentially bringing his wife and daughter out to the zone and living out there. And then it rains. And it, 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 it's, it's like confirmation of the higher power. That, you know, even though they're sitting outside the room, I feel like this moment is validation for Stalker that there is something there. And, you know, and it is responsive. Even if they don't, even if nobody crosses the threshold that day, um, it's still proof, proof of concept, I believe. So do you think that the men not entering the room <clears throat> is a negation of their belief in it or a confirmation of their belief and a fear of that power? This was interesting. And this was something that I was curious about, especially with Stalker at the very end. Stalker is devastated that they do not cross the threshold. But I think each man, writer does not cross the threshold of the room because he realizes that, hey, what if deep down I'm kind of a piece of shit and I don't want... what The world doesn't need any more of that, basically, is kind of what writer says. And uh, Professor never wanted... He only wanted to destroy it. So the fact that both of these men... I think it shows that both of them swallow their ego. And mm -hmm. so I think Stalker helps both these men. I, I really do. I think both of them would come out of this with a healthier mindset about their own egos and their own fragility. And so I, it's curious to me how devastated Stalker is by the time he gets home and that he, he's completely broken by these men because he says that they calls them the intelligentsia and he says that they only have the mind for hard science and for fact and for themselves they they have no open mind they can't they can't see anything they can't see hear nature uh, and so it ends for stalker's story ends on this really somber note but i don't i don't know i think he kind of got what he was going for to go to the mm -hmm. room and to have them not choose to go in so i'm not really sure how how to take the ending you know yeah and that's kind of the same struggle that i had with it um because it did seem like the men ended up respecting the room in the zone and that was kind of what stalker wanted overall anyway is people to have a belief in it because without faith he dies and without like literally without people's faith in the zone and their desire to get to the room, he doesn't make a living anymore. You know, that's how he earns his bread 
Yeah. Um, so, so I thought it was interesting. Yeah. And so the dog comes back to the bar with him and he, well, I had one more note. Yeah, go ahead. Please. The, the last shot as they're um, in the room, the, you see a piece of the bomb in the room and some fish swim up to it underwater. And then this brown kind of oil sort of pervades the scene. It starts with these like oily tendrils that come in and then it covers the whole, um, the, the whole screen that you're, that you're looking at. And then it's a cut back to sepia, back to the bar. And I was wondering if that is from a craft perspective, if he's saying like some of the sepia, some of the outside humanity has crept inside as well because of that bomb and because of uh, what professor has done. Maybe. Interesting. I think, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I think humanity has crept back in, but then we're also shown time and time again that through it, it, there's so many shots of man-made decay. Not mm-hmm. nothing man-made in this movie is still in good good condition. Everything is broken down. Everything is rusted. So, um I th- I think it shows that you know, mankind corrupts, but nature will will still take over in the end but mm-hmm. but I, I don't know if you know that fish is a victim or if it's just saying that nature will survive through anything you know right um but yes and that and it was the keypad for the bomb which i thought was yeah. really interesting and then we basically hard cut back to the bar do we not yep and so that's that's a real shocking moment to go back to the bar and um, so we see that the dog returns with Stalker and the and the gang, <clears throat> and um, his wife is wants to shoo the dog away, and he tells her, "Don't chase the dog away." And I think it's he's trying to cling, he's trying to deal with bringing back this part of his Stalker life. You know, that's really the struggle of his relationship, is, and the struggle of his wife is his wife brings up she knows what marrying a Stalker means. Her mom told her that he's no good and that he's a jailbird and that your life will be massive ups and massive downs or whatever, but this is what she chose as opposed to a boring life. And so I, I, so I think by br- allowing the dog to come home, she's trying to compromise with her husband being a stalker and how broken he seems to be outside of the zone. And one of, and... One of the saddest moments... In this movie is uh, he's in bed crying to his wife and he asks her or excuse me she asks him um, well why don't you take me to the zone and if all these guys won't cross I'll cross the room and he says what if you fail to and uh, that right. was a heartbreaking devastating moment for me um, just to see that you know stalker still has no hope you know, by the by the end of this movie, the zone seems to take everything from him. And which is at least somewhat ironic because, as you mentioned earlier, those shots when they're heading from the bar back to the house are in color. That... You, you get some more of the, the hopeful, beautiful world, even though what we're seeing looks like, um, you know, a chemical or nuclear power plant in the background. 
I did struggle uh, with that because he's carrying Monkey on his shoulders and they're walking home with their new dog. And it mm -hmm. it the background is awful, but it does feel optimistic. Like it Yes. He's returned home and maybe he's returned home a little bit more whole than he left. But by the end of this movie, I don't quite get that feeling. And then the his wife at the end is um devastating as she essentially breaks the fourth wall and stares directly into the camera and basically laments everything about her life. And, but like you were saying, she, she has a moment in there where she says that their life wouldn't be better without sorrow because then they wouldn't actually know happiness either. If there were She's no, implying that yeah, if there were no sorrow, there would be no happiness and there would be no hope. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah, that was heavy, heavy, heavy. And it's, she talks about, uh, rather than having the gray nothing, like, it's better to have these ups and downs, and this life lived next to a believer, than to have nothing. And before we get to the final shot, she reads a poem, and the poem is basically about the fire in your lover's eyes, and but also the struggle of when their eyes are closed and and the fire becomes smoldering embers. But um, the poem seemed to suggest that the, when, when the eyes are burning at their lowest and they're just smoldering embers, that's when they're most beautiful. Kind of suggesting that I, I think the woman loves that her husband cares so much i don't know like that through all of this through all of this pain through everything that he's done he's still devoted to the room and he still has that burning embers in his eyes the passion still remains regardless of how beaten down he gets by the world and um i wasn't sure if you had any readings on that final poem there no i mean i think it's um almost tarkovsky talking to the audience and you know, it's kind of literally the most on-the-nose emotional moment of the film. Um, and I don't think there's any kind of hidden meaning. I think it's I think it's saying what it's saying. It does what it says on the tin sort of yeah. thing. So, and then we close out with Monkey sitting at a table in full color, which is very important. And um, she slides the glasses telepathically before putting her head down on the table and listens to the train roll up. And as the train rolls up, you can hear um, Ode to Joy very blended into the sound design of the train sound. Mm -hmm. And uh, this just, I think, for me, this is the most optimistic part of the movie, is that everything that the, the stalker does not know this about Monkey yet, but everything that he believes about the magic of the zone and the power of it is validated, but it's also validated outside of the zone in his, mm -hmm. now it's in his family. And yes, his daughter was hampered. They say that, you know, stalkers have mutant children. So he's been blamed his whole life for, I believe for having his daughter be paralyzed, but now she's actually something more, you know, she's ascended beyond what, any human ever has. And so I, 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 
I try to look at this movie with somewhat of an optimistic ending, and maybe the stalker will come around, and he was just having a real tough day after <laughs> after after a long trip, and he just needed some sleep, you know? Yeah. Um, and I did think that, like, it also read as hopeful to me for the stalker's point of view, and maybe even in a way that he doesn't realize that he has... Um, passed on and impacted his daughter and this movie kind of resists metaphor i think annihilation which we'll talk about in a minute invites metaphors and this movie kind of resists them um in very much like that's the uh intent of the filmmaker but i do feel like in this scene you see that uh you know, it's not just that he passed this kind of deformity onto his daughter. He's also passed his belief structure and his his kind of zest for life and for that real life onto his daughter as well. Yeah, and just the fact the final shot is in color, I think, tells you what Tarkovsky wants you to leave feeling, which I believe mm -hmm. is optimism. In, in a dark, hard world, some optimism that the zone... You know, that beauty of the zone might come through a little bit. So I did find this pretty funny. Um, apparently, when he first screened it, uh, Tarkovsky was told that uh, the movie's too slow, especially the beginning. It takes too long to get to the main action. And his response was that the film needed to be slower and duller at the beginning. So the viewers who walked into the wrong theater have time to leave before the action starts. <laughs> Tarkovsky knows... He's asking a lot of you, you know, <laughs> he, yes. he knows it. He knows it. <laughs> All right. After that break, we're going to talk about Annihilation, which is a 2018 movie written and directed by Alex Garland, based on the book by Jeff Vandermeer. And um, first thing about this movie that I think is really cool is that stalkers all dudes. So this one's all women. And that's a really cool thing to see, especially in horror movies, which is not often the case. Um, I can't think of another movie outside of The Descent that is this heavily female-led, even though it has, it has nothing to do with them being women. Which is the best, you know, it's the most realistic stories about women are ones that are not just focused solely on the fact that they are women. Right. They're allowed to just exist as actual people in this story. And uh, so, yeah, <clears throat> Annihilation is very, <laughs> very similar to Stalker. A so, zone pops up, weird shit happens. And... Yeah, right from the start here, um, Jeff Vandermeer had been accused of drawing inspiration from Stalker when people read his book. And especially because in the book, the characters don't have names. Um, in the movie, they do, but in the book... They're literally like the geologist and um, the psychologist or whatever. Hmm. Uh, so, I'm about to listen to the book. I just got okay. it on. I'm. About, I just got it on Audible. Yeah, that's how I did it, and it was. It's a great listen. I have to cool. say. Um, I'm excited about it. So we start out, and um, what's is. The very first image we get is outer space, right? We get the the thing shooting down to the planet. Yes. Yeah. Which is really cool and um 
definitely reminded me of the intro to the thing where Same the, here. The, the, the alien saucer comes down and lands yeah but it's so cool and i also love something about the earth being on the right side of the frame and mm -hmm. you just following this thing as it traces on like a shallow orbit around i don't know i used to play kerbal space program a lot and so <laughs> any kind of shots in space like that i think are really really cool man i haven't thought about kerbal in a couple of years now oh it's dangerous yeah and suck your life into it <laughs> And uh, so then after this, we get our title card. It says Annihilation. And immediately after this, we, we're shown a single cell that begins dividing. Mm -hmm. And then and Natalie Portman is teaching a class about, about cell division. And well, first we get her uh, in the present day timeline. Oh, right, right, right. This movie is split up in uh, it's emotionally chronological but timeline wise it's all split up so the the first thing we see before we actually know who she is or what she's doing she's being questioned by a character named Lomax who's played by Benedict Wong who's um was in uh Doctor Strange is what I recognized him from um and she's asked cryptically she's asked what happened to the others and she doesn't know she doesn't know how long she was gone um, or anything that's happened. So you were kind of introduced to the mystery before the people. I love how this movie opens because it immediately opens on a tone of, first of all, anytime you see government people wearing full on suits like that, it's scary, especially yes. post, post coronavirus, or I guess we're not post it, you know, a lot of the world's still Mid. really struggling. Yeah. Um, but I, I think this movie does a really great job of cutting it like that without giving too much away. Because sometimes a movie, for example, the one I can think of off the top of my head was um, Don't Breathe, which is one where it's like they invade a blind guy's house to steal stuff and then whatever. Oh, yeah. But that movie starts with a shot that's from like an hour into the movie and it just throws this shot from then to start the movie. And so you're immediately, you're given way too much information about what's happened. And, and it kind of spoils a lot of it. Whereas this one, as an audience member, it's, okay, Natalie Portman survived. Something really fucked up happened. The, the time, you know, something weird happened with the time frame of things. Mm -hmm. It's really, really effective. Yeah, it's, I think it's here that they mentioned that she was gone for like four months, but only had rations for a few days. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it sets the hooks of like the mystery of like what has happened pretty deeply, pretty quickly. Yeah. And so we are then introduced to um, just kind of Natalie Portman's background, which is she's... Uh, biologist who specializes in c cell cell reproduction basically mm -hmm. and, and she's going to be teaching her class about uh cancers and cell division this semester is the idea yeah and later on she brings up the fact that uh the fact that we age is a flaw in our design mm -hmm. um and 
<clears throat> this movie often brings up the fact that it's it, everything comes from one life point as she tells you know she's teaching her students that for a while on earth there was one singular cell that existed before it split and split and split again and created the basis for everything that we all are and um this introduces the theme of like universal oneness and we all come from the same life force and from the same living essence and uh, it's really important to this movie as we're gonna see later and so once she's outside she walks outside the classroom um and she's approached by one of her colleagues dan uh and this is one of the the clumsier kind of exposition dumps uh, in the movie um he basically says, hey, your husband's been missing for a year. You're not de dealing well with it. <laughs> and yeah. uh, implies you get some sort of deeper relationship between her and Dan as well. Kind of the implication of it anyway. Yeah. And so she's going to go home and paint her bedroom because that's how you mourn people and get past their memories. You paint rooms and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and do some nesting shit. And this is where the movie really turns up because all of a sudden, uh, who plays the actor? Is it Oscar Isaac? Oscar yeah. Isaac. Oscar Isaac, her husband who's been missing for a year, walks into the room. And, and, and the the way that he just walks up the stairs, like he's he's familiar with everything and he knows what these things are, but he also has no idea about anything that he's looking at. He mm -hmm. does, I think, a great job <laughs> Of being this terrifyingly distant thousand yard stare, but at the same time he recognizes her. And that's the creepiest line for me is she hugs him and she's breaking down and then she realizes something's weird and and he says, I recognized you. Yeah. And that that is a creepy, creepy fucking line, because that sounds like somebody was who has no idea who you are was just looking through photos. And recognized your face or something, you know? So, during this sequence, um, on the soundtrack, we hear Helplessly Hoping by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah. Um, and it's used a couple times in the movie, and it's kind of our um, cue that we're in a flashback kind of mode. And intercut with her painting and his arrival is little snippets of their past life that get expanded on later in the movie. Yeah. Um, and so two things happen here. Um, I, I believe it's here. One is Garland really focuses on a glass of water as they yep. hold hands. And so later on, the movie talks about refraction. And it's also the blending. Uh, it, it kind of mirrors their hand position. So left is on the right, right is on the left. They're They're kind of melding into each other, and then the lyrics are, of course, they are one person, they are two alone, they are three together, and then it cuts on they are three together. And mm -hmm. so, pretty cool, a little on the nose, but I, I, think it, I think that song is used really well, actually. I, I really like the usage of that song. Yeah. And so I believe now, is this where we get the Shimmer title card? Um, I th think, oh... Um, we get, uh, he starts breaking down. He drinks from that glass of water and uh, there's yeah. a drop of blood in it. Um, and she calls the paramedics and they're, um, 
the ambulance is overtaken by some like black military vehicles, like SWAT team looking vehicles. And they pull Lena out and they pull Kane. Kane is Oscar Isaac's character. They pull him out of the ambulance as well. Um, and then we get uh, Area X. Which is the overarching area that the Shimmer is contained within, I believe. Gotcha. And this is where we get that title card? Yep. So, I, I was kind of tracking the first shot after title cards just to see if there's anything in there. And so, mm -hmm. after Annihilation, it shows the single cell dividing again. After the Shimmer, it cuts to her having sex and, and then the affair with that guy. Mm -hmm. And then after the lighthouse, um, oh, it cuts to them on the couch reading, but they're separated. And the book she's reading on the couch after that, after the lighthouse title card is called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And it's a, oh, non, yeah. it's a nonfiction book by Rebecca Skloot, and it's about basically about the immortal the immortal cell line known as the the Hela H E L A and that comes from cervical cancer cells and so she's reading about cell immortality um so I, I don't quite know if there's anything there with Garland cutting to those shots but I thought I'd make note of it just to see if I could find anything there cool so after this the shimmer we get we go to the base and we kind of meet the crew, and one thing I want to note is that throughout this the movie up through this point, it's 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 pretty grayscale. There's a lot of backlighting on characters. There's not too many facial details. There's a lot of grayed out, washed out shots. It's similar to Stalker almost, and not quite as sepia. But I do mm -hmm. notice that. They're really, really limiting the colors that you're getting um, before we go into the zone. And I'm going to call, I'm probably going to call it the zone. I know they call <laughs> it the shimmer in this movie, but I, I want to call it the zone. Yeah. And we are introduced to um, our crew of characters, and we've got five characters. Um, and they are. We have uh, we Ventress. Jennifer, yeah, Jennifer Jason Lee is Ventress, who is, as we find out later, has terminal cancer. Gina Rodriguez is Thornson. Tessa Thompson is Radek. Radek is, she has a past of self-harm. Mm -hmm. And Tuva Novotny as Cassie Cash Shepard, who is a woman who has lost a child. And so everyone, I don't quite remember Thornson her backstory i remember she's gay but i don't re quite remember she has um uh she's in recovery okay so and, so she had an addiction backstory and so we're getting again broken characters very similar to stalker we're getting characters with essentially no hope many of them mm -hmm. going in going into the zone and going to look for something and each of them have their own reason to go in um, Thornson seems kind of nonchalant about the whole thing. Uh, Ventress seems like after sending so many people to what she assumes is their death, she kind of needs to contend with what she's actually been sending people into. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I think the whole cast, this crew is, I really like their dynamic. 
I, I think it's just enough, similar to the thing, where you get just enough character traits to define each of them as individuals without needing to have exposition dumps about everyone's backstory. Right. Um, and that's... I, and that's kind of... that's. That's about all I have until we start to go in. If you have anything else before we go into the zone. Um, I kind of want to draw attention to Kane's tattoo. He's got a big bear uh, tattooed on his chest. Uh, That's so... F I did not... <laughs> I did not notice yes. that. <laughs> and uh, so that gets mirrored later. And the uh, their house... And specifically, the shots of Kane walking up the stairs get mirrored later um, inside the Shimmer. And those are things that, since I've, I've seen this a couple times now, I recognized. Interesting. Um, I have a question about the Infinity Tattoo. Yes. That everyone has on their forearms. We, as an audience, I don't recall ever being informed anything about that. It, Lena doesn't have it. And then she starts having bruising on her arm, and then she has it. I believe Thornson has it. Oh, the br yeah, the arm bruise. I forgot about the arm yeah. bruising. And the um, there is a soldier that we that we meet later through um, footage. So the tattoo passes from Anya to Lena, and it's shared by the soldier who they have to do field work on. Um, and for me, was that the guy in the pool who yes into the, he became like his skull was up high on the wall and yep yeah yeah and uh, that's uh, it is one of the the things where like I said this movie kind of invites metaphor whereas Stalker I think wanted you to be more literal minded um, at least. Uh, you know, uh, Tarkovsky was not drawing from a common pool of visual metaphors. Um, but I think this is literally kind of how we impact people around us and how that impact can stay with somebody long after you're actually done dealing with them. How it how that mark stays on you. Huh. That's interesting. I'm going to have to pay more attention to that tattoo because I wasn't sure if I, I don't know if I thought that was just part of their group thing where you get a mark before you go in for identification purpose or, you know, I wasn't quite mm -hmm. sure, but that's very interesting. Um, so this movie also has for me a bit of that, that Wizard of Oz transition where mm -hmm. when they walk into the shimmer, the shimmer is basically, it looks like a soap dish bubble. Where it's just like every single color all flowing together. And that, as we'll see later, they talk about the, the shimmer is a prism. And it diffuses all light and all life. So all life becomes everything and universal. And so I really like how it's represented by the shimmer. Um, just visually through color. But then when they step inside, I feel like we get our first shot of vibrant color. And it's just these lush greens... And it's stunningly beautiful. This movie, I think this movie is, for me, shows like how far CG has come now, where it, if used correctly, CG can really do magical things that 
previously were just used as distractions where like marketing for movies would be look how good our cg is right and now it's kind of the opposite of that where it's like people are trying to do their best to just create worlds with without pointing anything out that's artificial and for this, there's like a really great mix of practical and CG, which to my mind is the way to do it, to actually give your actors things to interact with. And um, I've been watching over the last few nights uh, with my wife, the um, Captain America movies, because she had never seen them and we were going to watch the new Disney series. And um, it amazes me how often you can tell like they're just on a, on a soundstage. When they're supposed yeah. to be in some grand location, they're clearly just on a stage somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And this, this they actually shot it in swamps in England somewhere, um, and augmented it with a practical set design, uh, practical monsters, and CG monsters and set design as well. It's 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 the way to do it, and it's the best blending is when you have everything there practical sets practical props in combination with cg and stuff you know i i think game of thrones as shitty as that show ended the production of the world in that show was amazing mm -hmm. just shooting on location but then augmenting these um, incredible real locations on earth with cg in the background and stuff they were able to create really cool things that doesn't feel too manipulative or fake um so <clears throat> the women come in and they go into the shimmer and then they wake up and so, natalie portman gets out of her tent and <laughs> they've been in there for three to four days with no memory seemingly and just before she wakes up is when she's having the memory or flashback of having sex with her co-worker dan um and it's once again mirrored by the same shots basically of her in bed with with kane uh with her husband um and it's another one of those things where and it's so dark you have a hard time i had a hard time at least telling who it was to begin with that she was having sex with they kind of don't show you and you're not quite aware of when in time that happened um yeah but as kane as kane later says uh you know i thought i was kane but am, am I you? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, um, we get into, again, the blending of life. The first thing that we see is the plant vines with multiple different types of flowers growing off of the same plant. And this mm -hmm. is kind of the easiest concept uh, introduction of the idea of life blending. It's a really good way to introduce it to the audience without it being overtly complicated or being too scientific. Just look at this one plant vine with 18 different flowers going off of it. Um, but then we move on to the crocodile. What do you think of the crocodile? The crocodile is awesome. I mean, the, the way that it's set up is very Jaws-like. Uh, and I think it's Josie's character is the one who's attacked from off screen. First of all, she's uh, radic is, yes. is dragged back into this hut that she had just investigated. That's kind of half sunk into the swamp and you don't actually see what's happening. You just see her being thrown around kind of like the opening scene of jaws 
you just see the character being thrown around and the force that it's thrown around with. You don't actually see the attacker at first. Uh, and yeah, and I'm, I think it's a really cool I was way expecting, to do it. I was expecting to see something alien. And so to see, I mean, it's it looks like an albino crocodile. But when you first mm-hmm. see it, it's like, oh, it's just it's just like a big, terrifying crocodile. But it's once it chases them on shore and starts shooting it that you see, oh, no, no, no. This is not a normal crocodile at all. This thing has crossbred with a shark somehow. Right. And that's, once again, you get, like, that the zone causes mutations. And it blends this life together. Um, and I really wonder, like, how they come to be. Is there some sort of mating? Or is it just through DNA blending and, you know, random cell divisions that it's picking up these other traits it seems to me like like it's a broadcast of genetic change uh, mm-hmm. it, it's anything that enters is going to immediately be changed and mixed eventually with everything else it, it seems to me i don't know how that works i don't know how you can blend a shark and a crocodile and a bunch of flowers but i feel like given enough time there will be no distinction between the fauna and the flora inside mm-hmm. the sh- inside the shimmer yeah we definitely we see <clears throat> proof of that later like that things are heading in that direction yeah and so after they kill the crocodile <laughs> they get on the tiniest little boats and now i <laughs> now i'm terrified because we yes. have mutant crocodiles and they're paddling along in these tiny boats and this is where we learn that um shepherd's character had her daughter died and um, she says that it was basically two bereavements. Uh, one was for her daughter and one was for the person that she was. Mm-hmm. And it, it shows essentially a division again, a, like a cell division and leaving your old life behind and becoming a, a new person, a new being. And we'll see this again and again. But I, I thought it was really, I thought that was a really great line that they put in there. Yeah, they kind of drive it home through the dialogue and through uh, character actions later, especially. That same idea is brought up of having these different phases of your life and like, and you're a different person then when that happens, when you've gone through this change. And so as they're paddling in the boat, Natalie Portman, uh, Lena, says that um, the, the growths in the area are like malignant tumors. But if I'm not mistaken, it, it looks like there's, those are military bunkers, what she's looking at, that have like the moss growth on them at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was questioning at the point in the movie, was are they malignant? Because it, breaking down man's militarization and returning things to nature seems like the opposite of malignant, you know? That seems like the most right. beneficial thing that nature could do for itself. Uh, so I was happy that they, um, that definitely gets explored further as the movie goes on. And intercut with this, um, sequence, she's back in the, the, I guess the present day or the most future time, um, being questioned by, by Lomax. And this is the first time that we see that Ouroboros tattoo, that infinity tattoo on her arm. Um, and it's intercut with the scene where she first sees the bruising of it um when they're in the boat 
and intercut with the, her talking about the growth overtaking everything. So it's kind of leading you to to understand that she's got some growth within her as well. Interesting. Um, what's the next plot point you got? Um, them finding the abandoned military base is the next thing I've got. Okay. So, yeah, this is where they they find a lot of evidence of previous journeys um, into the zone, uh, mm-hmm. as well as <clears throat> the the schedule, the, the guard schedule. And we see that Kane's name is on the list, so we know that Kane was here at one point in time. And they find a memory card that came from a video camera. Uh, and when they play it back... Um, and this is really beautifully done from a filmmaking perspective in that you mostly see it from the the handheld camera's point of view with a couple other shots inserted to really sell the effect. Um, but you get Kane performing field uh, operation on one of these other soldiers and he, he cuts a flap open from the soldier's stomach and you see the guy's intestines inside moving like in a really impossible way, just moving on their own, like sliding all around his body. It's gnarly. <laughs> it's wicked. Dumps the knife into the guy's belly. And then like, Oh no. Oh no. And I thought it was just maybe like, he's going to reach for something and maybe leave like a slit of like six inches. Mm-hmm. And then he kept going around and I was like, Oh no, he's making a door. <laughs> he made yes. a door. Oh God. And it looks like it looks like sea snakes for intestines or something. Oh god, it's it's wonderful like Cronenbergy body horror kind of stuff. Oh yeah. And um so when he throws the guy open, we find or excuse me, when he cuts the guy open, he throws the dirty knife into the water and the mm-hmm. pool. And we find out one that that's a pool that they're in. Soon, um that where that where that operation happened. That really right. reminded me of Stalker. There's a shot of yes. that knife with the dirty water on to, uh, like six inches deep. And I was like, that has to be a Stalker reference right there. Yeah. Um, another thing, which I just verified, I meant to do it earlier. This pool looks extremely similar to the abandoned pool near the Cherno- Chernobyl power plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's extremely similar tile design. It's like a similar angle. Uh, oh wow! And in the deep end, I, I, I could show you a picture later, but um, yeah, but yeah, there's like a famous empty pool near Chernobyl, uh, or it might be in Pripyat, but that <clears throat> that pool looked like it was heavily designed um, by it. Well, and that's a weird connecting thread between these two films. In that Stalker was what five, seven, six, seven years before Chernobyl happened but it informed the way that people talk about it and the way that people think about it, including we use the term, the zone of exclusion and people who have gone into the zone have referred to themselves as stalkers. And then this movie draws inspiration from Chernobyl from the, the way that mutations have happened there and the way that things have looked broken down and overtaken by nature. Yeah. It's really interesting because I know the video game made that direct connection, but it seems like that connection existed well before the video game or anything else like people put the two and two together very early on it seemed and you know connected russia or excuse me the ukrainian power plant with with this story which is interesting that 
two things that never meant to exist together become forever linked together. Right. Um, so what's, um, let's see after this, my next point is, um, have we gotten to the, the bear yet? No, the women find the, the body. They find where they had oh, done yeah. the, the, and they, they find where the, the previous, um, convoy on envoy, bunch of men, <laughs> where the previous soldiers did that field operation, they find the body, except for it appears to have turned into a bunch of lichen and moss, and it stretched the soldier's body out when they left it there. And like you yeah, said, the, the guy's head is like 10 feet up in the air. The torso is four feet above his waist, and it, yeah. it, it almost looks like a throne, how he's sat against the wall with this display behind him and the legs curled. It, it's grotesquely beautiful as are many things in this movie um so i i believe this is the next part as they're walking um is this where we see the white deer the white deer um, with the flower antlers not yet we okay. get uh first there's a flashback to the day that kane left on his mission um and then in the present or in the present day in the inside the shimmer Lena asks Ventress why Kane volunteered for what he knew was a suicide mission. And this is where kind of the metaphorical circles start uh, ringing from kind of the pebble that, that made me pick up on a lot of those. Um, because earlier Lena said that she's going on the mission because she owes it to Kane. Basically she had screwed something up and she owed it to him. Kane went on a suicide mission and Ventress says, almost none of us commit suicide, almost all of us self-destruct. And so that there was something going on in their relationship that he had to self-destruct. He didn't necessarily want to kill himself, didn't want to die, but he had to destroy what had been happening. Or the part of himself, or the part of their relationship that had been causing him pain. It's interesting you say that because after the title card of The Lighthouse, when we see them reading and they're completely separated on the couch by a few feet the only dialogue that's spoken in that scene is he says hey and she says hey and that's right. it and then then we cut after that to natalie portman hard sobbing breaking down and so yes. i definitely think in that moment yeah she's thinking back on the distance that seems to have grown in their relationship and there seems to be regret there well, and I've seen it that, um, I don't remember, is it explicit that she had an affair with Dan before Kane went missing? Yes. Was That's it? kind of in the next, next sequence. Yeah. So she had apparently had an affair with Dan while Kane has been missing, but she had a dalliance with him before. And I think subtextually, that's the reason that Kane took this mission that he knew might take him out is that he couldn't live in the life that he had anymore. So he had to destroy it in some way. That's really Pedro Pascal. No, not Pedro Pascal. Excuse me. Oscar Isaac. He, in this, and then in, um, what's the other Alex Garland? Ex Machina. Yeah. He excellent in both of them. And in this one, he really, he doesn't have much many lines at all so he has to convey a lot 
with just his body language and the vacancy often in his eyes or whatever. I think he does a wonderful job. And from a practical standpoint, I didn't realize that he was ping-ponging between this and Star Wars at the time. Like, he would come off of set or have a day off of Star Wars um, and literally work his days off on Annihilation and then go back to Star Wars. Wow. (laughs) I I don't even know how you could keep track of that. No, it's, um, and I think it was Alex Garland that was talking about how, um, whatever it is that makes a good actor, Oscar Isaac just has it because he could walk into the room and give you four or five variations on how the scene was supposed to be played. And they were all believable. I'd like to see him in some more leading man kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't know what else I've seen him in, honestly. Have you seen uh, a most violent year? Nope. Oh, that's that's a good movie. I went and saw that one a couple times at the theater. Um, very like Scorsese light kind of a feel to it. Um, yeah, and he's fantastic in it. That was my between uh, Annihilation, A Most Violent Year, and Inside Lewin Davis. Um, it was my kind of trifecta of falling in love with Oscar Isaac. I haven't seen Lewin Davis either. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> that's that's one that that gets me in my little artist heart yeah it hurts um, yep maybe we'll have to cover it sometime yeah we can talk about me crying in a theater in front of my friends <laughs> <laughs> well we're about to talk about me crying watching annihilation which i don't even yeah. understand so <laughs> let's just move on what's the next plot point <laughs> so uh that night at the base the the bear attacks Cass and drags her away uh, and the women argue if they should go forward or back because the where they are, they don't even know how far they've actually come because they've lost time. Um, but the plan is that they're going to hit the shoreline and then head in one direction because they know they can eventually find the edge of the shimmer by, by going that route. Also, had they just watched Stalker before they'd gone, they know you never go back. Right. You can't go back the way you Not came. in the zone. Come on now. Nope. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, bear attack, is, bear attack is pretty cool. I don't understand. They're all up in the tower. Why, yeah. why are you getting out of that tower at night? Uh, I don't know. Shepherd, what are you doing down there? But that, uh, I feel like coming so quickly after the, uh, Ventress saying we don't commit suicide, but we all self-destruct or almost all of us self-destruct. That's kind of a moment of maybe cast choosing suicide. Interesting. I mean, she. I mean, everyone is on this trip because they're broken in one way or another. And yeah, mm-hmm. Shepard. It's like Shepard and Ventress are kind of the the top two most broken. <laughs> it's like a race right. to see who's more fucked up. Um, and so yeah, and so this is where we start. The ladies pick up the next day and start moving camp, right? Yes, and this is where um, Lena finds Cass's body. She finds proof that she was was killed. Um, and this is where they see the deer with the flowers, the albino deer with flowers growing out of their antlers. So that deer, especially on rewatch, it's a little film trick, but man, it says everything about this movie right there. Mm-hmm. You have one beautifully white deer with flowers coming out of its antlers, and it's exquisitely serene. 
and then impossibly from the exact outline of it steps out a second deer that's in harmonious synchron it's synchronized movements with the white one right. but this one looks a little bit more flawed or decayed like it has some dark patches on its fur and it's essentially what we've seen with oscar isaac what we're going to see with portman is that idea of the the new and the old coming from the zone and, and mm -hmm. like the the new birth and the old birth and those two things existing together but you also it seems like they were existing very harmoniously together those, right. those two deer which i think is really important because as we'll later see i don't think there's anything necessary well there's some evil mutant creatures here but i don't think the zone itself is necessarily uh malevolent yeah like you were saying is is it malignant to tear down a malignant structure like that in and of itself, maybe it's just returning things to uh, even the 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 bear and the alligator. Th there's a sense of harmony and of um, rightness <clears throat> about, you know, they're acting according to their natures. Yeah. And so this is where um, Radek um, says that, oh, I think the signals not being blocked are radio signals being scrambled because this entire thing is a prism and this is where the idea really starts to to lay in of this life blend everything inside this zone is getting swirled together in the same genetic pool basically and i think this is also where one or two characters do blood tests and see that they have basically shimmer cells in, in in their blood now yeah there's a scene in here somewhere where lena looks through a microscope and sees the uh one simmer shell shimmer cell divide into two and uh, um this was also well this is now we're getting to the nighttime right yeah where the women were well they find that house yeah so this is I, um this is where um, Thornson seems to start to share some memories with yes. Portman. There seems to be some kind of telepathic transmission, not only of her experience, but also of Kane's experience, it seems, potentially. Like, she's... Thornson is getting a lot of different signals sent to her, but the one thing she does know now is that Lena's been lying and that Kane is her husband. And she saw Kane oh, yes. cut somebody's stomach open, and so it's, um, it's on now. This is where Thornson really snaps. And this is where she also talks about um, that her finger, her fingerprints are moving, uh, like his, like the intestines inside that soldier, and she wonders how deep it's gone into each of them. Radic does, or I'm sorry, um, Thornson does. Yeah, and now we hear Shepard's alive. Shep Sh Shepard's outside, screaming. Yes. Uh, but, uh, oh, it's not Shepard. <laughs> oh, it's not Shepard. It's the worst thing in in the imaginable <laughs> world. There's, this is, I couldn't, I couldn't take a note during this bear scene. I, 
the hair stands up on the back of my neck thinking about it and all i can tell you is that it's wrong that's mm -hmm. all my brain could tell me during that scene is just like this is wrong this doesn't compute this is and this is what i love about horror is when when horror can put me in this mindset where my brain does not even know how to respond to something i love it and this movie really puts me there and that's so the the bear when we finally see it in full light like it's fur is matted and rotted off parts of its skull but it also seems to be growing new growths out the side of its head and there's like a human skull kind of embedded in the side of its head i didn't notice i need to take a closer look at that bear i didn't notice that oh yeah it's definitely like um the the dna transmission has been going on but it is so messed up at this point and what's it, what's it's, it's it's saying help me or save me correct yes which yeah. jesus christ <laughs> yeah and it, it oh has shepherd's voice like it's oh my gosh and but it's it's like an inhaling oh yeah. god it, it's truly the stuff of nightmares and and it's, 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 it's the thing that people seem to talk about most when you bring this movie up. People yeah. bring it, oh, the bear, the bear, the bear, you know? And the sequence is so... Like, you see a lot of what happens. It's very violent. It sh The bear takes Thornton and shakes her and throws her against the wall. And um, apparently... Uh, Gina Rodriguez, the actress, did all of these stunts because, like I said, they didn't just do this CGI. They had practical elements that they used. And if you watch the behind the scenes stuff, they they show doing this scene over and over and over again from different camera angles to, to be able to composite all these things together. And the women tied to these chairs for hours and being thrown around and Gina Rodriguez like being thrown up the stairs and then dragged down the stairs again. And it just, it's one of those things where I think you, you in the behind the scenes footage, you see the care that went into actually crafting that creature and this uh, exchange. And it really shows in the movie. It's, it's the highlight of the movie. Actually, it's not at all. Not for me, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's like, <sighs> It's what creates this. It's what sets this movie into a horror realm. Whereas otherwise, right. I would say this is like a <clears throat> dark psychological movie or something. I don't know how I would describe. It's like Dark Stalker with more death, but it, yes. this scene really creates that tone of oh no, this is this is horror. This is terrifying. This is the journey into the unknown. And not mm -hmm. only is it unknown, but it's it, it's something that nobody has ever even seen before. And the bear, to kind of up the ante on the violence, tears off Thornson's jaw. Yeah. And that's how it kills her. It sure did. And yeah. <laughs> and it's moments after that, Radic uh, frees herself and shoots the bear. Not just shoots the bear shoots it about 35 times in the <laughs> side of the head to the point where chunks of like its skull and brains are flying out and even yes. then it looks like it's just barely dying you know <laughs> um and that's 
Uh, so all that we have left are Lena, Radic, and Ventress. Yeah, and so now this gets to one of my favorite scenes, which is, I believe, the following day. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first, Lena, or excuse me, Ventress says, we have to go now because every moment that passes by, I become less of myself. And by the end of this journey, I might be a different person and I want to be the one to end it. Yes. As, and so we're starting, we're, she... we're seeing the blend, the, the mental blend start to happen of all of these characters of sharing yes, sharing experience sharing qualities everything everything is shared now yeah she's being infected by her time in the zone her time with the other women her cancer itself um you know when she she's going through a traumatic experience and this is where like the metaphor and the actual text blend as well into her saying that that she wants to be the one to end it it's one of those great moments i think and then to kind of follow up on the fact she says she wants to be the end it, we get to Radix end, which Natalie Portman and her are walking and we see human-shaped bushes, human-shaped little shrub tree things that are unbelievably haunting and yet exquisitely beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and I... So go ahead. I was going to say, it, we, we see those... And it cuts to um, Radic and Lena talking, and you see Radic's self-harm scars where the other women have the Ouroboros tattoo, and there's actually little vines and things that have started growing up through her scars already. Interesting. And I believe, but this this seems to be her choice, because she says, yes. after, after seeing Thornson's body, I believe she says, I would rather basically leave a monument to I, I don't want myself to be a monument to pain or to like the dark things that have happened and so mm-hmm. in a really beautiful way I, I, I think she ascends and accepts this is really where it's like it brings into question how malignant is this force because she seems to accept this new life of existing as a part of something and a part of everything and I don't know. I she might be better off living as a, a, a tree in this world. You know, I I don't right. know. She's she's clearly a woman that has gone through extreme trauma in her life, and so I thought that was a very profound moment, especially the fact that you barely see it. You see a little bit of the 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 branches or leaves, but by the time Portman walks around the corner, she's gone. You know, she's right. become one. Her, her last line is, Ventress wants to face it, you want to fight it, but I don't want either one of those things. And that's exactly what Natalie Portman says about the thing, about yeah. the force at the end of the movie, is I don't think it wanted anything. And, and, and then that makes me think very much of our own lives. I, I exist, I don't know why I exist. I, don't, I didn't come here to this life with a purpose. I just exist. Right. And so I'm here because I'm here and I don't I don't have a grand scheme or some kind of big motive or anything. I'm just I'm here because of chance or coincidence and I'm I'm trying to deal with it and I I get that feeling from this life form towards the end of the movie. It's definitely I think it's just trying to live its life in the way that it knows how. <laughs> and yeah. It, that just happens to affect everything around it. But 
we also get that flashback of the two of them reading on the couch. And that's where the, the song comes back and helplessly hoping comes back in yeah. during that scene. Um, which I read that as maybe the last sweet moment that they had. Uh, yeah, I was curious if... Yeah, it seemed kind of like that moment where when you look at your partner and you just kind of have your own language mm-hmm. and just, you know, saying hey and hey. Yeah, I could see that being their own little language that they had. Um, but it was also interesting because hey... You know, when you recognize someone, that's also what you say. So I was also thinking of later on in the movie when he shows up at the house. Yeah. Just that moment juxtaposed versus that moment on the couch. So I, I think I think you're right. I think because Natalie Portman is shown to be breaking down. So you're probably right. That's probably a good memory for her. And Oscar Isaac's reading some magazine. Don't get to see what he's reading, unfortunately, but... It didn't have uh, thematic resonance, so they didn't check it. <laughs> so we get Natalie Portman, Lena, makes her way to the coast. And I think this part's so cool because the trees and the salt from the ocean have basically combined. And so we have salt crystal trees is how I, as how I look at those trees. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't know why else those trees would be crystalline, except that they're right next to the saltwater ocean. I didn't make that connection, but that makes total sense. That was a first for me. So there you go. (laughs) I said one smart thing. There you go. (laughs) You said you didn't have any left for this movie. See, there you go. It's impressive. My brain is going to be done after this, but... Oh, by the way, listeners, we're going to watch something more fun and (laughs) less heavy for the next one. This has been four heavy philosophical movies, and Josh and I need a break. So expect something light next time. (laughs) Our brains are pudding at this point. So we make our way. Josh, what's your read on the four bodies outside the lighthouse? I never quite got a good enough look at them to... There's like a little altar of bodies outside the lighthouse. Yeah. I didn't know if it was representative of the the four women that she has lost um, or if it was literally like from Kane's last um, expedition, because we get the idea that he was the previous expedition, uh, even though it was over like a year that he was gone. Um, I don't know if that was the the other soldiers. And he had been the last one alive and he did that or what exactly? Because it doesn't seem like something from the Shimmer itself. It seems like something man-made. Yeah. But it also shows me that, I don't know, did did all of the previous journeys make it to the lighthouse? But this mm-hmm. is, you know, something that Lena does. She She breaks the cycle somehow, whereas nobody was able to before for whatever right. reason. I don't, I'm not quite sure how I read how I read those those bodies set up out there but they're absolutely set up and so we move into the lighthouse now and Lena sees a camera set up with a scorched body sitting against the wall and she slowly very terrifyingly moves towards the camera I think knowing what she knows but doesn't mm-hmm. want it to be true and we see that it's Kane on camera about to commit suicide. Uh, 
not just commit suicide, he's going to do it with an incendiary grenade. Like white phosphorus. Yeah. Yes. Which is like basically I, I I want every single cell in me to be destroyed. Yeah. Just killing myself is not enough. I need destruction. As you said before, yeah. it's not suicide, it's self destruction. Yes, it's uh, it's total obliteration. So at this, this point. This part is where Oscar Isaac had me. And this, this is his quote. He says, I thought I was a man. I had a life. People called me Cain. Now I'm not so sure. If I wasn't Cain, what was I? Was I you? Were you me? That moment, every nerve on my body was standing out because I just thought that was so haunting. And also... Mm-hmm haunting but beautiful because i do believe in some universality of us all coming from the same life force and the recycled nature of nutrients in in our bodies like how many times have the water molecules that i've drank or the carbon that i've eaten from the ground how many different animals has that existed as and then gone into the ground and become a vegetable and then become a tree and uh, what am I? i i don't even Every single cell that exists in my body has died multiple times. I have no original cells that I was born with. So what the hell am I? Why? How do I right. even think I have this consciousness? So his speech right there struck me hard. And that's, it's another instance of this film working so well on like a plot level versus a, the metaphysical versus the metaphorical level. <clears throat> It's it kind of hitting on all three of those because the things he's saying ring true, you know, just from Kane's perspective as as a character within the movie, but also the way you just said, but also emotionally, he's a different person. He's He's been on a journey and now he's becoming somebody else that's going to go back out into the world and, and who... Who is that person? Is that the same person who started this journey? Is that the same person who had the relationship with Lena before? Does this new person have that same relationship or has it changed? Is that different uh, because of his self-destruction? Yeah. And even in just like the most basic metaphorical idea of being in a relationship with someone for multiple years and both of you going through changes and looking Mm -hmm. back seven years into a relationship, wondering if you're the same people that you were at the start. Right. So, and then this is where we, you know, the the hammer gets hit home that when the cameraman speaks, that's that's a fucking right. chilling moment after after he says, "Go find Lena," and then the cameraman says, "I will," and then he lights drops the grenade and kills himself. Yeah. Ooh, haunting, bud. Haunting. That real scary shit right there. And that's, it's, uh, so it's at least that version of Cain that's come back, if not some further mutation, even as he exited the Shimmer. We don't even know. Hmm, I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't even considered that it might be, yeah. Who knows what is walking out of the Shimmer, because right. as we've seen, the Shimmer doesn't produce individual creatures. It produces amalgamations of everything. Yes. Um, so Lena goes down into the hole where the impact 
the impact crater basically and we see Ventress down there except this is a Ventress copy already Josh what do you think because when we first see Ventress she has basically flat eye there's no eyes whatsoever her skin looks completely black and then by mm -hmm. the time she turns to talk to Lena she's it's it's almost like in the thing where you know assimilation happens and by the time yeah. Lena starts to talk to her, it's assimilation complete. Uh, Ventress... And, so go ahead. I was going to say, I think that maybe Ventress has already given herself completely over to it. In much like the way that, that Radic had said that she wants to face it. Uh, that she got her chance to face it and, you know, came face to face with it and turned into it, essentially. Turned into the thing that's, that lives at the heart of the Shimmer. Yeah, and so Ventress's final words, which I had to throw subtitles on for this one, is it's the last phase, vanished into havoc, unfathomable mind, and now beacon, now see, S-E-A. Which mm -hmm. I wasn't... I have no idea what the hell any of that means. But it seemed important. <laughs> but uh, did you notice that all of the black walls around them are subtly moving and slithering kind of yes. like the guy's intestines yep I noted that yeah it's creepy it's grody and... it looks kind of like the ship from from Alien uh, the design of it does yeah it reminds me of the hallways in Alien or in Covenant oh absolutely uh, especially like the egg room yeah yes absolutely and now this this is where this movie turns up to 11 for me, and mm -hmm. it ascends. Very few pieces of art do this for me, where it's like I, I feel the ascension of them becoming more than anything that I ever would have expected or anticipated, and this is one of them. It happens when Ventress starts to breathe out and exhale all of the the cells and basically exhales life force and it, it's there's this sound design and it's this synth but it sounds organic similar to the bear and i'm you're not sure if it's diegetic or not i can't i'm not sure if the life force is creating these sounds but it's so intense and i have to have like the room shaking to get the experience but <laughs> When Natalie, Natalie Portman looks into it, and she looks into the, the source of life, and it looks like a DMT trip. And it's, it's just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. But it's also terrifying. And so once again, mm -hmm. my brain does not know how to respond to this. And as this progresses, and as the, the, the creature forms, and it begins to emulate natalie portman and it crushes her i just started i just tears just started streaming down my face it was so intense and i didn't even it wasn't a mo it was just a complete outpour of response to a piece of art that was so intense that i just had just like a flush of emotions that i don't even know what they were but mm -hmm. it, it was it's some of the most intense movie experience i've ever had these last 10 to 15 minutes of this movie. And it is the kind of the last act of this movie from the bear on. Um, 
it's echoes of things that have happened before. Like the, there's the bear tattoo on Kane, and then they find the bear. The house that they encounter the bear in, and even some of the shots are echoed from when Kane first returned home. Um, the the shimmer itself, the outside walls versus the thing, the 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 floating nebula, and the walls of the chamber are all three uh, D representations of the Mandelbrot set that have been extruded in different ways. Um, so it gives you this this through line where it's not just like another moment in a film. It is really the culmination of everything that's led up to this, you know, and it's, I think it hits because of all those things, because the filmmaking is working on such a fine level, as far as the craft goes, um, it is transcendent beyond just, Hey, there's a glowing thing in the middle of the room. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, it exceeds that. It's just, it, it's terrifying. And it's, I, it's one of those moments where, it's like you when you stand before God or something, and the only thing you can do is just bow because you have no other way to even understand or respond to what you're seeing. And that's just how I feel about this this creation and this creation that Lena has and this this fight that she has with it. But it's the fact that it becomes her and it slowly becomes her and you can tell it's trying to understand itself. This thing has just been born and it's trying to understand itself through what it might think is its mother, you know, birth, right. birthed from one woman into this other. And, um, and then it, it, it basically, when it has her against the door, it's, it, it looks like it's consuming her. You know, it's it has its hands on top of her hands, its head on top of her head, and it literally mm -hmm. looks like it's going. I thought it was going to turn into like goo, and swallow her. But by the end of yeah. it, when they both fall away from that door, they fall in a perfect mirror, but it's completely synchronized. Portman's on the left of the frame, the other thing's on the right, but they both fall, and the, you know this thing has now achieved synchronicity with her. You know. So the the glowing nebula drew a speck of blood off of Lena's face. Oh yeah, and that's kind of how how it creates this um, this shape that that imitates her. And the shape, the humanoid, uh, was played by Sonoya Mizuno, who is actually one of the students uh, in the classroom at the beginning, and she also played the lead in Alex Garland's TV show Devs. Oh, cool! Uh, I, I... She was a a ballet dancer by trade previously. Oh, cool. I'm, I'm going to watch devs soon. Yeah. Th that's one uh, that hit me hard and sent me on a, um, a heavy sci-fi philosophical kick for several months after watching that series. Right. So, um, Natalie Portman, yeah, after fighting this thing, I think she comes to realize that it doesn't want to fight it doesn't it i don't think it wants anything and i think she comes to that realization um and so she finds another white phosphorus grenade i don't know if you have anything before this point no just that it when she wants to fight it it wants to fight her and she can't she's not going to win in a battle against it 
she has to kind of succumb to the fact that it's that it's trying to mimic her and that it's trying to that it's doing the same things as her so i yeah i thought she was going to go for a mutual self-destruction mm-hmm. so she puts the phosphorus grenade in its hands and it, it's a very gentle moment of her taking yeah. the hands of this thing which is her you know it's this thing is more her than her daughter or son would be you know this is directly from her blood this thing it looks mm-hmm. it's taken her form and so she pulls the pen and bails and runs out of the lighthouse and you see the dejection on the creature on the new natalie portman and it just looks incredibly sad and rejected by its creator and catch you know its hands catch fire and it slowly burns from the phosphorus and it it doesn't look like it feels pain or anything the only thing it seems to feel is just rejection and loneliness and so it it, it slowly just chooses to self-destroy you know and it caresses the the corpse kane's corpse before it crawls into the hole into the the heart of the the ship or whatever it was both to destroy the evidence of him but also yeah as a as a tender gesture yeah and um so yeah she the um, portman's rejection of this thing causes it to then destroy everything and so we see it set fire to the lighthouse and the lighthouse seems to be the centralized signal beacon and the crystalline trees shatter and the shimmer dissipates and we are back now to um the interrogation correct yes lomax is questioning lena uh about her understanding of the nature of the alien um and lomax basically says like the the shimmer is going to destroy everything and she counters with it's not destroying anything it's making something new I yeah I think I think the world would be a hell of a lot better off if the shimmer did take over everything. I mean mm-hmm. humans I don't know maybe we would all like maybe I would like to live as a tree. I don't know, you know maybe. Mm-hmm. Um but it's, it's interesting that yeah the, the world would be fine but humans are so concerned about our own individual egos and our own individual identities that we we can't accept that we'll all become part of one gigantic hive mind of universal life. We, we, you know, we must cling to what we have now. This current system that we have now, as flawed as it is, we have to cling to it no matter what. Well, and it's like the idea of people saying that, um, you know, we're, we're killing the planet, the world's going to end, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the thing that, I grasped a long time ago was the world's going to be fine. The planet's going to be fine. We might make a mark on it, but the planet will be here long after people. Yes. <laughs> we might kill all the people on the planet, but the planet is going to recover, especially if we disappear. Well, to bring Chernobyl back into it, the the amount of resurgence of nature in that area is incredible. And man could be erased in like a hundred years, everything right. could be gone. You know, <laughs> we are, we think we're so highly of ourselves 
and that like we we know what's right and what what existence is, but we don't know jack shit. It's I, I, it's, I honestly I think at the end of the movie, as in addition to rejection that the the alien creature faces, I almost feel like it's it's just disappointed in humanity. Like, you know, it goes to this lighthouse, which is a beacon. So you could say that humans are, you know, we're leaving a beacon out or with SETI sending out extraterrestrial, sending out radio signals looking for extraterrestrials. We are sending out beacons looking for things. But but then what if something gets here and we do just, we would just murder it, you know, <laughs> if we ever did get right. in contact with alien life. And how disappointing is that to be an alien and travel all the way here and and then just have people blow you up with white phosphorus out, you know, just. <laughs> oh, Josh, that was heavy. Well, one last thing, because you noted the the glass water in the scene where Kane comes home. Oh, yeah. We get that same trick with the refraction. Uh, he focuses on this glass of water and Lena's hand behind it. And it's refracted in much the same way that Kane's was earlier. And, uh, and then the final, final shot. The, she goes into Kane's room and says, you're not Kane, are you? And he says, I, I don't. What does he say? I don't think so. I don't think so. And he says, are you Lena? And she doesn't answer. But he gets up and hugs her. And you can tell they're, this, they're of the same life force it's it's only a flicker yes. of the eyes but then the movie the final shot it's showing them through a clear pane of glass and then this blue pane of glass moves in front and then the frame ends with a division and so you would go from like a clear thing and then he crosses the midpoint and they change the color and then there's this empty frame on the left side and the two of them together on the right and for mm -hmm. me it, it, it almost looked like it was emulating again like cell division once again yes. we have a division and we have like the old on the left and now we have like the new life on the right and then the god bless this movie for not putting in a bad song or anything at the title cards because the way those right. title cards come in where it, it morphs from like this pink color and slowly morphs it's perfect along mm -hmm. with the sound design the end credits seal this movie so perfectly in this eerie moment, this eerie feeling of, oh shit, what now? Like, who, who are those two? What, what now? I love, right. I love the tone that this movie ends on. And that's, for me, it definitely, the, the metaphorical landscape of it struck home, uh, personally, like, there's, as you were saying earlier, um, the the person you, you are seven years into a relationship isn't the person you were when you started, and the person you're with isn't the same person either. Um, I watched this movie shortly after my divorce, and it it hit me on that level of, you know, I, I'm a different person than I was when I was 21 when I got married. You know, that was 20 years ago. That's several lifetimes ago <laughs> at this point. Oh, God. I think just 21 to 25 years old, you go through a massive transformation. Yes. And, you know, I have I've had two kids since then. And so 
I'm a father. Is a father the same person? You know, I'm partially the same person I was when I was a child, when I looked up to my own father, but I'm also now in his position. And so I'm a new person, but I have all these, these threads and dregs left over from, from whatever I was before that come along with that. And that's definitely like this, the things that I feel like um, Alex Garland brought out in, in the story and in the script that they might be there in the original book, but the book seems to be about so much more plot wise that uh, that stuff kind of gets buried. And this, he really uh, Garland said that he was, that he made his memory of the book. He didn't make the book itself. Um, so I think that that's just kind of goes to show that he connected with it in a different way than just on a purely plot level. And that's, and I think again, similarly, that's similar to how Tarkovsky interpreted roadside picnic to become mm -hmm. stalker as he roadside picnic is much more about like a stalker goes, it's like, it's broken into three different short stories where each one is a stalker's trip into the zone. And so it's much more episodic. And so, okay. it, you know, similar to what Garland did, Tarkovsky took that base idea and then expanded on it primarily with emotion and mm -hmm. philosophy. So, um, I don't know if you have anything else, but I, <laughs> my, my brain is shot. <laughs> um, no, I think I got through all my metatextual notes uh, in the text itself. Oh, I did like the fact um, Alex Garland said that the journey of the film was a journey from suburbia to psychedelia. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah. That plays into... That's a good point. That plays into you saying that it's it's like a DMT trip at the end. Um, it definitely is. Um, and he also said that it's the film is about depression, grief, and the human propensity for self-destruction. Which I thought yeah. was pretty dead on. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you and I um, covered those points pretty well. Yeah, I was. I'm trying to find who did the the sound for Annihilation, but I don't know who these guys are. Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow, but good on you, boys. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know. I did. I noticed that the um, concept artist was Jock who uh, is is kind of well-known in that realm. Um, and has, if you can look up Jock's um, website and look at his, his own art, it's pretty fantastic, and he's done art for all kinds of things. Oh, nice. So this movie, Annihilation, budget 40 to 55 million... And it did $43 million at the box office. Uh, so it bombed. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> That's I'm. I don't know. I'm I don't know. Alex how, Garland how, still got to do a series. How do you market this, though? It's, it's, it, most people don't want to watch this, like, that kind of movie, you know? Imagine no, so many it's... people seeing this in theater and seeing a title like Annihilation... And, like, women going into a place with guns and, like, oh, cool. It's, like, women fighting 
aliens and monsters for the fate of the earth no that's not it at all <laughs> yeah it it seems it, and it toys with the idea with like the albino alligator and the um the bear it it definitely knows that that path is out there that it could take that like uh basically being aliens you good yeah, I thought you. I thought you yep. froze mid sentence. <laughs> All right, we gotta call this man. I'm, nope. <laughs> that 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 awkward pause right yep. there tells me that I'm done. <laughs> All right, um, think about what you want to watch next week. But yeah, let's do something fun and goofball and and, and something like eighty-five yes. to a hundred minutes would be nice. <laughs> Pie is the shortest movie we've yeah. watched. And I think that's still like a hundred. So this was a lot of this was God. this was a lot of movies. Yeah, today. we need to get this down. Uh, just it's just a quick two hour forty five minute discussion is all we just had. No big deal. All right, Josh, that was a good one. My brain's done. I think I'll see you next week for something a little bit lighter. That sounds good to me, brother. All right, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time on Nashville, CA.